Greg Knuckles with us, and Greg is somebody who I've known for a few years now, and so he, how long have you known Greg? Probably about um, the same length as I, me. I think I met him for the first time probably two and a half years ago, but I'd known of him a little bit before then, and it was really funny how it happened, I feel like maybe in 2013 or 2014, or just around there. Um, for me, anyway, it kind of seemed like he popped up out of nowhere and everyone was all of a sudden talking about him and he's this new, smartest guy in the industry and he's, can you believe how young he is and look at his blog posts and um, to this day I know... Look I at have, that beard, my Yeah, God. that too. And I know <laughs> there are colleagues of mine who think he's one of the smartest guys in the entire industry to this day. So, um, definitely have a really good reputation. Well, yeah, I'm I mean... glad to know I've been able to fool people for so long. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like that. Modesty. That's cute, Greg. <laughs> no, I, I met uh, Greg at the Epic Fitness Summit in 2015 and was uh, very impressed. Good uh, connoisseur of beer as well, which I appreciate, and lifter of heavy things, which I also appreciate. So, um, but I guess for maybe people who have been living under a rock for the last few years who might not know a lot about you, Greg, how did you get – first off, you're at UNC right now. Is that correct? I am. Okay. So how did you get into research in uh, exercise and nutrition? Like how, how did this get stimulated? Because we kind of ask all our guests this and um, we're always interested to find out like what path led them here. Um, so yeah, I, I got into lifting seriously, uh, basically just because I got too injured to play other sports. Um, tore my MCL, got a bunch of concussions, uh, shoulder issues from pitching too much in baseball, just a bunch of stuff. So uh, lifting, very low risk, very uh, controlled scenario. So that was good for my uh, my body that was way too beat up at way too early of an age. Um, and I, I think I always thought in the back of my mind, like, hey, I wish I could find some sort of job where I could do something like this professionally. But I wasn't really aware of anything like that except for being a personal trainer. Mm -hmm. um, and I knew that personal training was one of those things that you didn't really need a degree to do. So I went into college as a history major and mm -hmm. uh, got to the like senior capstone class. And then we were talking about um, job prospects with a history degree. Yeah. And I realized, like, wait a second, I don't, I don't want to do any of this stuff. Um, I liked taking the classes, but, uh, didn't really want to do anything with that degree. So at that point I was like, eh, screw it. I'll just change to exercise science and, uh, just see what happens from there. And as far as getting into the scientific side of things goes, I think mostly it's just how I'm wired. Um, I like to... Like, I, I was the annoying kid, like, even from the time that I was really, really young, who would just ask why about everything. Um, ah. And so then when I figured out about the scientific process, I was like, oh, this is cool. It's a systematic uh, a systematic process of asking why and how. This is, this is super neat. Um, so, you know, if I get passionate about something, I'm just, like, naturally inclined to look for the scientific evidence about it. Um, so in, in that regard, lifting and fitness was really no different from anything else. And is that about when you started blogging, Greg? Because I know, when did you graduate, 2014 or 2015? 
2014. So that that's about I think a little maybe a little bit before then is when I started hearing of you. Um, so I guess maybe your senior years when you started trying to um, be more active online. Uh, yeah, it was it was actually incredibly serendipitous how that worked out. So I uh, my my dear sweet then girlfriend now wife. I used to just talk her ear off about lifting all the time, especially when she started lifting with me because I was like, oh boy. hey, I lift and I want to talk about it all the time. So I assume now that you lift, you also want to talk right, about right, it all right. the time. And, uh, you know. My scientific data has come to determine that that is not always uh, the case. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, eventually she just got kind of tired about me talking her ear off about lifting constantly. So she was like, why don't you start a blog to talk to people who actually want to talk about this stuff? <laughs> uh, so yeah, she she actually was the one who pushed me into starting the blog just so she could get some peace from it. Um, and it just, uh, it, it took off. It's not, it's not something I ever really set out to make like a thing, if that makes sense. Right. Um, just started getting hits and... Uh, then after we graduated, she got an internship out in California, and um, I got a job as content manager for Juggernaut at the time. Um, but SoCal is super expensive, and do what? I just moved here yesterday. It's very expensive. Oh yeah, it's oh, congrats on the move. That's awesome. Uh, but yeah, so you know, I was trying to look around and say like what else could we do to get like more income to make ends meet um, and uh realize like oh people read my website maybe that could become a business mm-hmm. um so that's when i got into online training and doing things a little bit more professionally that's funny that you you mentioned the the way you kind of tapped into the being a scientist I tell people, I'm like, the fundamental crux of a scientist is just somebody who asks questions, like, Mm -hmm. and is not willing to necessarily accept the answers either. (laughs) Um, I think I I heard Neil deGrasse Tyson say it, and he said, the most crucial job of any scientist is to question even those things that we hold most fundamentally to be true. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, like, that's... That's how some of the greatest scientific discoveries uh, in the history of the world have been, is just people questioning the status quo. And not just questioning, but um, not not necessarily willing to accept the answers. And I always, in the fitness industry, you know, I think we have, um, I think people can fake it a lot easier. A fitness industry is a lot like, the really popular thing now is to be an entrepreneur. I don't know if anybody's noticed this, but like, you just go to a conference for a weekend and all of a sudden you're like an entrepreneur. You, you know, do one show and you're now an online coach. Yeah, yeah. Well, even people, like I, I just think like right now, the, people hear about the concept of passive income for the first oh time. Gosh, and yeah, right. blows their mind. Everyone, yeah, like, yeah, by the well, way, everyone, everyone, every chick has a glue ebook. <laughs> if you guys haven't yeah. noticed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm actually working on my first ebook. I'm probably about ten years too late, but you know, uh, <laughs> but um, you know, the very popular thing right now is to, to be an, to be Gary Vee. You know, I mean, be an entrepreneur. Um, and I think it's it's easy and, and the way that that's easy to fake because you can talk about all these projects you're doing and 
things you're doing in the grind. Like that's that Gary V actually said, like that is something that's very easy to fake. I think that knowledge is pretty easy to fake in the fitness industry um, because it's easy to give somebody like a half answer, you know? Um, and so a lot of people that say, well, why, why should I do this? Oh, what well, was, for example, like why, why, why should I eat this keto diet? Well, because, you know, insulin. Insulin mm-hmm. is, is a lipogenic hormone, causes fat storage, all this kind of stuff. And a lot of people, you know, they, and they don't have the wherewithal to actually say, okay, but when calories are controlled, does insulin actually make a difference? You know, or like any of these other things where, you know, the scientific mind, one of the things I, I've actually, I actually have a seminar called Think Like a Scientist, which is basically where I try to get people to say, okay, you know, you may not be a scientist, but you can still use the scientific method. And usually the scientific method can determine if somebody's full of it. Um, mm-hmm. But I thought it was very interesting that you you brought that up because that is the fundamental, like, underlying, at least for all the really good scientists I've met, um, or most of them, if you talk to them about, like, going and doing, like, an advanced degree, like, like Sohi was the same way. It's not oh, you know what, I really wanted just people to call me doctor and uh, I wanted to be an academic and apply for grants. It, it's, uh, I had these questions and I just, this was the only way to get them answered and get, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's interesting the way you frame that. Now, two, 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 th- two things I'll say about that. One is uh, regarding like why it's reasonably easy to fake knowledge, like not, not just in fitness, but in, in most domains. Uh, one thing is that like people, people on the whole just aren't great at delineating between levels of expertise that is greater than theirs. Um, essentially like you, you can tell reasonably well if someone knows more about a particular topic than you do. But if, uh, you know, if, if Gary Taubes says one thing about nutrition and Alan Aragon says something else, um, without a pretty good independent background in physiology, most people are going to recognize both of these people know more about nutrition than I do, but there, there's not a reliable way to tell which one of them knows more. You know what I mean? That's interesting, um, Greg. It's almost like, um, like if I didn't know, I don't know anything about skateboarding, right? Like mm-hmm. if I go out to watch a skateboard competition, a, a trick one, uh, and we have the best person in the world and then the 50th best person in the world, I'm probably not going to be able to tell the difference. Yeah. So it's kind of like that now that I think of it. That's very interesting the way you frame that. Yeah. So it's it's a similar principle there. Um, and ultimately, I think the reason why someone like Taubes does so well um is just, just from the way he talks and his confidence, people perceive that he knows more about nutrition than they do, which in a lot of cases is probably true. Like, I certainly disagree with him about a lot of things, but he is certainly more well-versed in nutrition than the typical person is. Uh, so people recognize he knows more than them, and the message he delivers is, it sounds complicated enough that it sounds quote-unquote science-y, um, yeah but there's few enough steps to it that most people can grasp it. And then he makes them feel smart for grasping it. Mm. Uh, So it's, it's one part make people think that, you know, more than they do, which isn't that hard. 
and two, um, have a have a simple enough message that they'll get, but make them feel smart for getting it. And I think that's what a lot of charlatans do very, very well. Um, and then the the second thing that I was going to say just just about the the prior um, topic of conversation is, I think. I think an important realization to make uh, about yourself and everyone else, um, which I think helps a little bit with humil- humility and being more scientific minded, is that most people are wrong about most things. So here's here's a pretty good decent check for that. Um, so when one of the three of us reads like science journalism, like some journalist who covers health and fitness writes about a new study about exercise or nutrition or anything like that. Almost without fail, they do a horrendously poor job of it. Um, <laughs> like yep. some of them do really well, but most of the time it's not great. And, you know, they're not scientists, but they're, uh, they're health journalists. Like th- it's, it's a topic that they're supposed to have, more knowledge about than the average person does. Um, and they still do relatively poor, a relatively poor job of, of understanding what they need to understand and then relaying it to their audience accurately. And, you know, so that's, that's something that I would assume they feel pretty confident that they know about. Like they have that background, they put in the work on their story, gathering sources and whatnot. And they're still, reasonably wrong a reasonable percentage of the time and that's just kind of how life is going to go because there's a tremendous number of things out there to know and there's not that much time to learn it all mm-hmm. but to just get by and function in day-to-day life you can't deliberate for hours over every decision you make and so a reasonably small number of things you're passionate about and you've gone out and collected evidence and have probably come to the correct knowledge and the correct conclusions about it. But a lot of things you believe reasonably strongly on pretty terrible evidence just because you wouldn't be able to function if you had to understand everything fully. And just based on that process, a pretty decent percentage of the things you believe and I believe and everyone believes about most things uh, are, are probably wrong. And so I think yeah. uh, I think just knowing that about yourself and internalizing that um, helps you take a more scientific perspective on the things you really want to make sure you get right. Yeah, I mean, like, I can tell you that I think part of the reason that people say, like, I, I got this all today because I've been on my – I've been into – my fix today is triggering ketogenic zealots. And um, I've had so many people say, why, why don't you get on the Joe Rogan podcast? Why won't you have me on the podcast? I said, well, I'm probably not sexy enough to be honest with you. Like my message is not simple enough. I mean, in a way it is, but you know, if you ask me about a particular diet or you ask me about a particular nutrient, I'm going to say, well, you know, this is probably good to do this way in this circumstance, but maybe not in this circumstance. And it really depends on X, Y, Z. Like, you don't give absolutes, which is what people love. They want short. Yeah. Yeah. They want to hear me. You want to hear somebody say, this is the best way to do things. And here's why. 
right? And that's why somebody like a Taubes, when he says, you know, calories don't matter or you've been lied to, that's that's another uh, – actually, that's another big uh, tell of a charlatan is whenever there's evidence to the contrary, somehow it's a conspiracy. Um, but the the I think part of it is that we you, you can do this in any kind of field. Like if you go to a true expert, somebody who studied their entire life who has done controlled trials on, on anything – and you ask them to give you kind of a blunt yes, no answer on complex topics, they usually won't do it. The, usually they're going to kind of qualify everything. And um, and if even if they disagree with another expert, they're going to acknowledge that, okay, well, here's the limitations of this and here's the limitations of that. And unfortunately, that just that doesn't sell. And actually what it sounds like to – um, the average person who doesn't know any better, they go, well, that person doesn't sound very confident about their own knowledge, you know, you when, know, when in reality. Confidence plays a huge role in, in leadership and people's ability to trust you. So if you have no idea what you're talking does. about, you, you sound confident, they go, oh, well, he must know what he's talking about. So I'm going to believe call that the Thomas DeLauer effect. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, in all, in all seriousness, uh, it is hard, but, you know, people ask me, um, you know, well, how do I know who's an expert and you know like because people will say well you know are you saying that we shouldn't follow anybody who doesn't have phds lane and no i I think there's plenty of people who are really intelligent who haven't even done graduate school level research but um you know somebody does a phd make you infallible no i've read research from a lot of phds where i thought they didn't even understand their own research and their own data um and I'm sure some other PhDs probably think I'm an idiot somewhere. But I think what it does is gives you levels of confidence, right? Like, mm-hmm. can you be an idiot and get a PhD? Yeah, there's probably some idiots out there who have PhDs. But it gets to be really hard if you're talking about a legitimate academic research institute. Like, it gets to be really hard. You you got to think about it as like uh, filters, you know. With, you know, high school was a really wide filter. A lot of people get through College is still a pretty wide filter. Grad school, eh, but doing original PhD research, that's a pretty narrow filter, and it's going to catch a lot of people who um, just, quite frankly, um, aren't, aren't smart enough or aren't driven enough. I mean, that's part of it, too. There's plenty of smart people who never finish. But uh, I guess what I'm saying is, no, it, you know, having a PhD or having an advanced degree doesn't, it doesn't make someone smart, but it is hard to get to that level without having accumulated a pretty good amount of knowledge on a particular topic. Not to mention a no, good I, skill set for stats and um, reading research and trying to be objective as well. 100%. Yeah. I, I think that when when stuff like that gets brought up, a lot of people will just toss like appeal to authority in your face. Yes. Yeah. What, what they miss and what most what people miss way too often is a lot of times what they have perceived to be an appeal to authority is just more like a probabilistic statement um where it's like ah yeah this guy he has a phd that doesn't necessarily mean he's right but that does mean that there's a higher probability that he's right than exactly Um, exactly Uh, or or my usual because i i tend to be sometimes a little abrasive if you guys can imagine i know it doesn't seem that way because i'm such a warm and fluffy person but uh I would just say, well, um, if I'm an idiot or you don't agree with me, then you should go do a PhD. I mean, apparently it's pretty easy. I would recommend going and do it because I got paid for mine. So, you know, go do one. 
I had one. It's great. <laughs> um, you know, speaking of PhD, I want to ask you, Greg, because uh, I know right now you probably just finished your first semester of your master's program, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, first of all, congratulations on your first semester being done. Um, and I know a lot of people are probably wondering, because I know we were talking from 2014 onwards, your momentum with your career has been pretty incredible. And uh, I think, you know, most people would say that you have a rare combination of abilities. You're very strong. You're very intelligent. You're really good at marketing. And uh, so now I'm just complimenting you left and right. But I know from a business standpoint. If I I can moderate that last thing a little bit. I am horrendously bad at marketing. My wife is incredible at marketing. So So mine goes to Lindsay for that. There there is a marketing brain in the Knuckles household, but it is not me. Good job, Greg. Good job. Okay. But we can say from a business standpoint, a lot of people might say, why would you? Why am? Why on earth would you go back to school if you're set for life to make probably tons of money and do very well with your career? Why would you get a master's degree? And do you also have plans on getting your PhD later on? Uh, no plans on getting the PhD. Um, as far as why I go back to school, it's um, uh. This this isn't a hard question. I'm just trying to think how I want to phrase my response. Um, basically, it's it's not necessarily an issue of credibility. That's not the exact word I'm looking for, but something with a similar connotation, I guess. Um, you know, m- most of my written content is um, like breaking down research, and I think there's there's a difference between. Uh, like academic knowledge and hands-on knowledge, and I think um, I think before I even started my program, I had a uh, reasonably good like academic knowledge of how the research process works. Mm-hmm. Um, just because like if if I was going to uh, if I was going to write about science, like I didn't just want to see what was in the study. I also wanted to have a decent idea of what goes on behind the scenes and how the research process works, because I think that's uh, important context to have to be able to discuss what I discuss reasonably well. Um, but, you know, there, there's a difference between knowing what goes on in that process on kind of just like a, like a book knowledge level and actually uh, going back to school and seeing that and being a part of it firsthand. Um, so honestly, that that was the vast majority of it. Um, wanted to go do research, be a part of research, and I think that um, I think that that will help me do what I currently do better. I think that's very admirable, Greg, and I, I think that's I think that that shows kind of your character as well. Because I mean, I can tell you, and obviously I'm biased because I went and did. Um, you know, a, a long, <laughs> a long graduate degree, and it was very difficult. So I'm biased towards that uh, degree. But there are things that I learned doing research that I just couldn't have learned uh, if I hadn't. Like just reading it wouldn't have, have accomplished the same thing. Um, I'll give an example as to you know how people can misinterpret some things. Uh, a friend of mine, Chad Dolan. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He did his uh, master's in Mike Zordos's lab, and uh, they were doing a study looking at, you know, different modalities of cardio 
and then also a, a cardio modality where they just had them lift weights, light weights that quickly. And the when they when they pulled up the slide that was looking at the order that the weights were being lifted and it was kind of quirky. And I knew why it was quirky when I saw it. Uh, but I, I was uh, we were in a seminar and I raised my hand because I wanted them to answer for the benefit of the audience. I said, Chad, why'd you have them lift in that order? And he said, because we were in a 10 by 10 space and that was the only way we could possibly get more than one person lifting at the same time mm-hmm. because there are time constraints, budget constraints and all this kind of stuff. They're not dealing with, you know, an enormous, you know, state of the art facility. People think, you know, research is a lot of times conducted in state of the art facilities. It's not, it's conducted in a basement somewhere. It's not always so high tech fancy at all. Right. Yeah. And, and so, you know, some of the analysis we use are high tech, um, but th- and that's because they're high tech and expensive. That means the the hardware, as it were, is usually pretty low tech and inexpensive. Um, but you know, if you just looked at that study, um, you know, people who if you haven't been involved in research, you might look at it and go, "Well, they they did it that way because that must be the best way to do it." No, they did it that way because it was the only way they could do it. You know, yeah. I really liked what uh, uh, Zordo said about. Um, something one time he was looking at two forms of uh, daily undulating periodization, uh, a model where they did a one to one to one ratio of uh, strength, power and hypertrophy. And then they did a, wait, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. That, that's, that's incorrect. It was, it was the order. Yeah, it was the order. So they would do strength. Uh, I'm sorry, hypertrophy strength and then power days or uh, strength, power and no, hypertrophy. Was, days. The other one was hypertrophy, power, strength. Yeah, it, I probably got it mixed up, but uh, in any case, the the I'm I'm sure you're right on it. I'm sure I got it wrong, um, but you know they showed that the group that had the the power day between the strength and hypertrophy day that they had a little bit better results. And I really love the way Mike phrased this. He said, "I'm not saying this is the best way to do DUP. In fact, we may have just found the second worst way to do DUP." What I'm saying is all we know is it's probably better than this other way. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, I thought that was beautifully put. And again, something that would be lost on somebody who, who, or maybe not be lost, but somebody who hadn't had that background would probably be far less likely to kind of understand that. So I think it's very admirable you going back. Now, what is your focus of study going to be? Have you kind of come up with a concept yet for your, uh, for your research? Uh, still waiting on my advisor to uh, to approve an idea. <laughs> okay. And yeah. That's, that, 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 that. For the listeners, that's Abby, Dr. Abby Smith Ryan, correct? Yes. And she was on our podcast, uh, I think, a, a years year, ago. year and a half ago, and she's probably one of my favorite um, women in 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 science. <laughs> she's really great. Yeah, she's very smart. I actually coached her for a figure show years ago, um, which is which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's. I've actually coached everybody. It's kind of weird. <laughs> At one point, including myself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was uh, funny story. This is completely off topic, but I was on the phone phone call with uh, some of the execs at bodybuilding.com a year ago, and they were talking about their bodybuilding spokes uh, person, you know, and they talked about Steve Cook who had won and Nick Cheadle who was in it yeah. and all these sorts of things. And they're like, "Hey, Lane, do you know this person?" I'm like, and I was like, "Yeah, I coached him. Do yeah, I, I coached him. him. Yeah, yeah, I coached him." Yeah, I could, oh God! I could. <laughs> so, 
but while we're on the topic of like experts and research and um, Zordos in particular, uh, one of the things I tell people is, you know, if you're not, not everybody has time to go get a PhD. Like that's, like you said, Greg, you have a finite amount of time and most people do have knowledge, but about one or two particular subjects they, they have pretty good knowledge of. You, you can't, you know, you can't just spread yourself so thin. Nobody is a, a, you know, a master of all things. So if you don't want to go back to school and get an advanced degree, I think probably the best way to do things and, you know, because learning how to read studies is going to be another time commitment as well, um, is to find people that you have a relatively high confidence in and follow them and see what they say. And most experts, I think guys like you, Sohi, I, Alan, Brett Contreras, you know, this whole group of people, you know, we disagree on probably very minor things, but I would say we agree on 90 to 95% of things. And you actually came up with a publication that I think is great that full disclosure, I'm an affiliate for, (laughs) but uh, it's called mass. And I've actually been really impressed with it. Like I honest to God, use your publication every month to one, think about different video topics that I'm going to do. And two, just to keep myself current with the research because I'm busy running a business. I don't have time to, you know, go through every research study that comes out and you guys really do a fabulous job of breaking down the latest research. It's you, Dr. Zordos, and Dr. Eric Helms. What and you actually had the idea for it? Is that correct? Uh, I I got the idea for it from Saul Orwell. Um, oh, yeah. So he he started the uh, Examine Research Digest, and um, basically just said, "Greg, this is awesome." Uh, you need to do something like this for lifting. And I was like, well, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't have, uh, many formal qualifications. Like, I don't think that would go over too well. He's like, ah, just find some people who have PhDs to be your partner. It'll be fine. (laughs) Um, so, you know, I have been following Eric and Mike for a long time, like them a lot, trust them a lot and said, Hey guys, let's do this. And I think we were all uh, at least a little bit dubious of, of how it would go at first, but um, yeah, it's it's doing super well. People are really enjoying it, and uh, yeah, one of one of uh, the best um, again, just like serendipitous things that happened to me because I I don't think the idea would have occurred to me on my own but Saul like prodded me for over a year to do it and uh Saul's the man so I trusted him it's funny how those kinds of things work out and um that actually reminds me Greg I remember someone online some some time ago asked you Greg do you think now that you're going to be going back to grad school do you think mass will be a distraction from that and will, will it take away from your studies and you said actually I think it'll be the opposite it'll force me to stay on top of the research every month so in a way, it'll be really good. So I love your very um, positive, proactive attitude about that. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, I actually too much to add there. <laughs> you know what was, what was interesting that you bring that up, Sohi. And, and for those of our, our our listeners who are interested in this publication, like I said, it's great. It's wonderful. You can go to lanemass.com through my affiliate link, full disclosure, or we'll put the link in the description for the podcast, um, and you can you can check it out. But I, you brought that up, Sohi, and it actually reminds me, I, I think the sharpest I've ever been intellectually 
and the best I've ever been as a coach was right after I got out of doing my PhD because now I freed up all that time where I was doing a full-time PhD, but I'd still been coaching people for about five years. So I was, I was, I had had a lot of in the trenches, so to speak, uh, experience. I had just gotten out of reading every research study I could find on nutrition. I just got out of doing my own research and I was myself competing at the time as well. And, uh, you know, and also just the weekly, I don't know if you have this, Greg, but, you know, Dr. Lehman's lab, we would all, all of us in the lab get together once a week and discuss different research articles that came out and just pepper back ideas back and forth. And it was like kind of intellectual jousting. Mm-hmm. And I just know that when I got out of the atmosphere, like I was so freaking sharp um, that I just knew like any, I don't want to say all the research, but anything in my space, I pretty much knew it. I knew who the authors were. I knew where they went to school. I knew what their favorite breakfast was. Yeah. Like I just, mm-hmm. you know, on everything. but I think the coaching, me coaching people while I was there, it actually helped me. Like, I think it wasn't just PhD helping the coaching. I think the coaching helped the PhD as well, because it just made me think about things from a much more practical perspective uh, that I wouldn't had if I was just uh, just thinking purely about research. No, I can I can definitely see that. Um, so. Yeah, we uh, we're, we're actually talking about getting a group together starting next semester to. Uh, to go through the current research like you were talking about. Man, this semester was just insane. Um, there were two pretty big training studies going on, one with 49 participants and one wow. with 89 participants. Wow, wow, wow. Um, with, with all of those visits split up between uh, not all that many people. So, uh, yeah, this semester there there wasn't there there just plain wasn't time for that. But uh, hopefully it'll be better next next semester. And next, yeah, it's, and next year too. Once you're a yeah, it's a two year program, correct? It is. Yeah, I feel like once you're a second year grad student, uh, a little bit mentally different, and especially once you have uh, your own research topic to to implement. Um, hopefully, you'll have more control over your time and and things like that. Yeah, that's the uh, that's the hope. <laughs> well, I, I did have a, another question for you, Greg, because um, I had seen you written on this, and, and just full disclosure, one of my good friends is Dr. Jeremy Linicky, and uh, he is, I think, one of the most uh, uh, intense individuals I've ever met, and one of the smartest people I've ever met, and a, a dogged uh, research work ethic. Um, but there is something I don't really agree with him on, um, and I know you've you've written as well, as has Eric Helms and Dr. Zordos and everything. But I wanted to get your perspective, and that is, um, you know, Jeremy is very emphatic recently that strength is a purely specific skill. Um, at least, uh, please correct me if I'm I'm getting his position wrong, um, or to your best understanding, and that is um, that training for hypertrophy and muscle growth is really kind of useless um, if your only goal is to improve strength and that um, if your goal is to be strong, you should just basically train one rep maximums or very low reps. Um, Now, I think, you know, at least from my understanding of it, uh, I think where people get confused is if you look at somebody like me, 
Um, my legs are not massive. Uh, my best squat is pretty massive, at, at least for a 93 kilo guy. Um, I've squatted 668 pounds at 205 pounds. But if you were backstage at IPF Worlds and you were looking at people's legs trying to determine who was going to squat the most, I would be the last guy you're going to pick, right? But um, I think the question is not comparing across different people. I think it's comparing within yourself. If you gain more muscle, do you get stronger? And I think that's where the point is being missed is that, you know, if I slapped on 20 more pounds of muscle, you know, that's more uh, cross-sectional area. There's more contractile tissue. Uh, but, you know, that's my feeling on the subject. You've actually written about what the data says and kind of like the summary of it. Can you give us, like, does it actually matter if you grow more muscle to get stronger? Yeah, so I think the, um, I think I think you bring up an important point that um, it's the, the claim, at least the way I would phrase the claim, is that um, like a bigger muscle isn't necessarily a stronger muscle when comparing two people, yes. uh, but within a given individual, uh, assuming similar technical skill with whatever lift you're using to assess strength, etc., uh, a bigger muscle will be a stronger muscle, or at least have the capacity to become a stronger muscle. Um, I think one of the reasons it's um, somewhat difficult to demonstrate that experimentally, uh, and something where I think that Jeremy is right, uh, is that if you're looking kind of globally over an entire, like a lifter's entire training career, I do think it's incredibly likely that um, like neural changes and improved technique and just better motor skills I think that's going to explain a much, much larger percentage of strength gains that occur than muscle hypertrophy will. Um, you know, just, just as an easy example, uh, most people, first time they try to squat, lucky if they squat 135, maybe. Um, but, you know, uh, uh, most people, they put five or 10 years into it, they're probably going to squat at least 400. Fair amount of people squat 500. Like, those are... Those are solid numbers, but they're not like stratospheric or anything. Um, and so, you know, they're getting like three to four times, or yeah, like three to four times stronger in the squat, or able to lift three to four times as much weight in the squat as they could when they first tried it. Uh, but obviously, they don't have three times as much muscle mass. Um, like that would be that would be pretty ridiculous. Um, like the average untrained male is about 80 kilos and about 40% of that is muscle. Uh, so, you know, average untrained person has 32 kilos of muscle, about 70 pounds, give or take. Uh, you know, they're not, they're not tripling their muscle mass over the course of a training career. Uh, they don't wind up with not 210 pounds of lean mass, but 210 pounds of muscle. Uh, like that would you know, that's like pro bodybuilder level. Um, so obviously gains in muscle size aren't, it can't be the primary driver of strength improvements. Um, but I think it's, uh, I think it's incredibly unlikely that increases in muscle size aren't, aren't a meaningful uh, contributor to strength gains. So 
for example, um, when I started lifting, the first meet I did, I weighed in at 152. Um, walk around at about 240 now. And if I could total at 148, what I currently total, I would be the best power lifter on the planet by, by such a broad margin, it would be ridiculous. Um, I think it's unbelievably unlikely that I could cut down to the weight I was when I started training, lose all of the muscle I've accrued in the process and still lift the same amount of weight. Um, I can't claim to know that for an absolute fact, but I would be incredibly surprised if that was the case. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's one of those things where he's, he's right. Sounds like a volunteer to me. God, no, that sounds terrible. (laughs) That sounds never. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I definitely agree with him that, uh, improvements in technique, just getting better at the exercises, skill acquisition. Um, those are probably the primary drivers of strength gains. Um, but so even if the primary argument is that most of those strength adaptations are neural, like you assume they're primarily neural, your nervous system is still acting on contractile tissue. Like your, your nervous system doesn't lift weights on, on its own. Correct. It, it, it does that via contractile tissue. So if you give it more contractile tissue to act on, of course it's going to be stronger. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, that feels like such a simple point to me. It makes it makes me feel that I don't fully understand his position. And so something, so full disclosure for the listeners, we've tried to record this podcast before, but the, but the audio got messed up. Uh, and Sorry, when we guys. About this, and when, when we talked about this last time, I said I felt like I must not be uh, fully understanding his position. So I went back and read more about it. And one of the things that I did miss the first time around uh, is that part of his position is essentially that when most people start training um, over the course of their training career, it, it, it may not necessarily be that accrual of muscle mass can't uh, help along strength gains to some degree. Uh, but essentially, his position seems to be that most people simply don't accrue enough muscle mass over the course of a training career for those very small accruals of muscle mass to meaningfully contribute to strength. Um, and I think you can do one of two things with that. Uh, one, just kind of throw your hands up and say like, oh, well, hypertrophy really doesn't matter. Or hey, maybe people need to train more for hypertrophy because the studies he cites that show people kind of stop growing after 12 or 16 weeks in some well-controlled research, maybe they weren't training hard enough after <laughs> 12 or 16 weeks. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I think I think of anything that's, that's m- more of an argument for needing to do more hypertrophy training because growing muscle is hard. Like it, yes. it's, it's not a easy thing after your first few months in the gym. I don't think anyone argues that it is. Um, well, and the other thing yeah, to I, consider too is, you know, I have done training that was more specific, you know, where I'm, I'm doing, you know, four times a week squat maxing and, and these sorts of things. And I can tell you, I got a lot stronger. I can also tell you it was not sustainable. <laughs> 
Um, you know, not that you can't get injured doing lighter weights and higher reps for hypertrophy, but I can tell you that anecdotally, because I don't know if there's any scientific evidence out here, I notice people tend to have a little bit more longevity in their training career if they're not, if they're allowing themselves some recovery from really heavy training. And that, mm-hmm. that makes complete sense to me. Uh, that's, that's something I've been doing over the past few months as well. And I don't, I know both of you guys are um, very high level powerlifters. And I was, you know, I, I did two powerlifting meets and um, I, I eventually got, started getting um, injuries from squatting and deadlifting. And so now for me, I, just prefer doing high reps for squats and deadlifts because I then my form stays good. I don't have to worry about you know crumbling under the bar or anything like that. So I think there is, um, I, I, I think I think that it, that does happen, Lane, with uh, with high reps maybe having lower injury rates. Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't think it's anything that's been studied, but you know that's something that's hard to study. Like IRBs, usually maybe more of a survey type of thing. I guess it's, that might it's be been, it's been studied indirectly. Um, in studies looking at injury rates between various lifting sports, um, the two studies on bodybuilding, I want to say one of them, the injury rate was like 1.24 injuries per thousand hours of training. And one of them was like 0.5 injuries per thousand hours of training. And for powerlifting, uh, all of the studies I've seen, puts it somewhere between like two and three and a half injuries per thousand hours of training, which is still quite low um, compared to like most team sports. But obviously that's like two to six times higher than bodybuilding. Sure. Um, Right. Which, which isn't directly testing. Is it the effects of reps? And there could have been methodological differences between those studies, et cetera. Or are Um, people who do powerlifting more prone to be injured? Like, yeah, I think that's less likely, but it is a, you know, Correlation goes both ways. Yeah, I, I would I would say at the very least it is it is indirect evidence of uh, maybe higher rep training um, is is a little bit safer. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, Greg, circling back because we were kind of talking about keto zealots and um, I, I we were, we just got talking about the last episode and it triggered a memory. Um, you made a really I hope you can remember this a really elegant explanation of comparing diets and you talked about a compartmental model of fat loss and do you do you recall this discussion vaguely okay so you know basically i forgot how we got on the subject oh i i I remember i remember right of of keto zealots and and you know the, the research studies kind of show that you know if you control calories and protein is equated uh, however you choose to diet in terms of carbon fat distribution really doesn't make a di- really doesn't make a difference. Um, but I would love for you if you could kind of just go through that 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 explanation of how you would assess would a diet be superior for fat loss because I thought it was very simple but very elegant uh, explanation of kind of determining if a diet was superior for fat loss. Yeah. So the the point basically was that you have. Uh, you have two depots of long-term energy storage in your body. And that's um, your your body's protein stores, primarily going to be muscle mass, but I guess organs to some degree as well. Um, and then adipose tissue, fat stores. And you, th- there are other energy sources in your body, primarily muscle and liver glycogen, but changes in those aren't going to meaningfully contribute to long-term weight changes. So you have 
just those two depots of, of long-term energy storage in your body. And so if you're holding all other things equal, um, like rate of energy gain or loss is the same, then something that's going to be superior for fat loss inherently must be superior for uh, sparing lean mass. And so one, the research just isn't there to, to claim that keto is better for fat loss. But two, um, before you could be like really confident about that, you'd also need to show that it was better for uh, lean mass retention. Again, in, in a study with protein equated, um, and there's just nothing like that out there to the best of my ability. Um, cause so essentially like if you're in an energy deficit, that energy is coming from somewhere. And if more of that is coming from fat tissue, inherently that's sparing lean mass and vice versa. Um, and so for keto to be superior to, um, like a moderate or higher carb diet, um, you know, you, you would need to show that it was inherently better for lean mass retention as well. And I'm, I'm just not aware of any research that demonstrates that to this point. Yeah, I'll, I'll save you the time. It doesn't exist. <laughs> uh, I mean, but that's what you said was a very elegant way of looking at it in terms of you can pull from lean mass and you can pull from body fat. In fact, I've, I've kind of uh, the, the ebook I'm writing. Um, one of the, the big things is discussing how much lean mass people lose on a diet. And as you said, uh, or sorry, lean, yeah, lean body mass. And as you said, you know, lean body mass is not the same thing as muscle. It's not people, people use them interchangeably, but they are not the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, because lean body mass is all non-fat tissues, bones, skin, uh, you know, everything that's not fat, literally everything that has weight that is not fat is lean body mass. Now muscle is a large organ and it's a good portion of lean body mass. I'm not sure the exact number. I think it's probably about half. Am I, do you happen to know, does anybody happen to know this? I, th- I think I it's mean, probably it, like, what's that Greg? It, it depends on someone's body composition, but it's, uh, for an untrained person, it's about 40% of body that weight, right. uh, which I guess would be slightly less than half of the mass. Yeah. So uh, I, I think the, I, what I've, what I've found is that, you know, it is so variable, uh, between, you know, if you have, and it just goes to show the training effect. If you have somebody who's an advanced trainer who tries to get very lean, they're going to lose about 30% of their, the weight they lose will be from lean mass. It'd be about 30%. Um, if you have somebody who's new to training, who doesn't try to get super lean, they'll, they can gain lean mass while they're dieting. Um, and like just looking into the compartmental model, it's just really interesting um, how much different variables affect all these things. And uh, one thing I thought you were very good at pointing out was that, you know, muscle glycogen and liver glycogen are not even though people consider, you know, 500 grams of, of glycogen storage a large fuel reserve, it's really not when you compare it to the overall mass of the body. You know, if you're looking at uh, overall fat mass and someone has 10 kilos of fat mass, you're talking about, you know, or actually 10 kilos would be very small. Like if you had like 20 kilos of fat mass, I mean, you're talking about tens of thousands of calories 
And, you know, with 500 grams of glycogen, you're talking about 2000 calories. Like you're just not talking about, and then you add lean mass and what can be liberated from there. You're just not talking about, like, you're probably talking about less than 1% of your body or probably less than 2% of your body's energy reserve. Probably way less than that. I mean, cause uh, yeah, I'm taking a shot in the dark. <laughs> I mean, uh, a kilo of fat, that's what somewhere in the neighborhood of, of 8,000 calories or so. Well, so, it's, it's uh, adipose tissue is about 87% lipid. I've actually got my calculator out right now. So if we look at a kilo of fat um, times 1,000, that's 870 grams of fat times 9. That's, uh, yeah, 7,800, 7, approximately 7,800 calories in a kilo of uh, adipose tissue. Yeah, so I mean every every kilo and a quarter of fat you lose, that's, that's 10,000 calories. So, you know, you, you drop 3 pounds on the scale and that's – five times as much energy as your total glycogen reserves. I mean, that's yeah. a, that's a, a pretty, pretty big difference. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Greg, I like, uh, I like that we're talking about fat loss and, uh, this reminds me of, uh, you know, with, with fitness professionals and, and, and just general population too. When we talk about weight loss, we usually mean fat loss, but in actuality, they're two different things. Um, and I think a lot of people make the mistake of relying, you know, solely on scale weight to measure fat loss and they assume any fluctuation, um, you know, any downward trend is indicative of fat loss. Any upward uptick is indicative of body fat gain when it's important to remember there's so much more to your actual body mass than just body fat loss and gain. Um, so there's all that lean body mass we just talked about and, uh, really important reminders. I feel like I have to, uh, Remind my clients and my audience of this over and over and over again with with uh, with fat loss progress It's it's a lot more than just scale weight that goes into the equation Well in fluid too fluids a huge yes, component. Absolutely. Um, you know if you lose um, Well do this. I mean heck get people people talk about Dexa like it's some you know amazing magical thing that like has some x-ray vision to count all your individual fats listen Dexa makes the same assumptions uh, that a lot of the other methods of measuring body fat it's just using a different method of of calculating it now the the if you want to add, you want to add five pounds of lean body mass the fastest anybody's ever done it take a dexa then drink like two liters of water and then take another DEXA. You'll have added oh. you'll have added five pounds of lean body mass because uh, water. That, that that that's just why like pre testing guidelines are important. Hundred percent, hundred percent. You have to. I, mean, I, I don't I don't think a lot of people are aware of that. But yeah, if, if you're doing research and you're going to DEXA scan someone, like you tell them, don't work out hard yesterday. Uh, don't drink alcohol the night before. Come in fasted drink minimally before you show up at the lab. Like, you know, it's one of it's, 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 get better results. Do what? There, there are definitely ways to get better results as you're saying. Yeah. More consistent. But I mean, I can tell you like we would Dexa the, you know, this is rats, but we would Dexa our rats and we would do one Dex, we do it in duplicates and we'd have times we'd Dexa the same rat and there'd be a 2% difference in body fat. And we usually okay. throw it out. And can I ask with, that? with the rats and you know the DEXA scan? They're giant machines. Would you put those tiny rats on the giant, like the full, or were there, or were there smaller versions for the rats? No, just put them on the regular one. I would love to see <laughs> they a visual of be, that. The visual is so funny. Wow. Yeah. They, well, they were. Now you can only do it when they're when they're like sedated. Uh-huh. You can't you can't just put them on there oh, and have right. them run around. Yeah. Right. But, has, um, has has DEXA been validated for that application? Uh, yes, 
It has. Now, it's 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 just it tends to be, at least in my experience, a little more wonky because any error is going to be a little bit exaggerated by the fact that you have such a small body mass. Yeah. So if you're off by a few grams, the percentage difference is a lot bigger. But usually, like usually when we measure in duplicate, it would be pretty similar. I mean, we we'd be within you know plus or minus uh, you know half a percent, I would say most times. But um, but the point that even like you know people will go and get a body, uh, they'll get a DEXA scan done, and then they'll get another one a month later, and they'll go, oh look, my I gained a pound of muscle, my lean body mass went up by a pound. Uh, you probably just, just didn't muscle. pee. Right. You probably just didn't pee, honestly, before you went and got your next <laughs> done. Like, I mean, that sounds, but it's the truth. Like, like now, if you look over the course of a year and you're getting consistently higher readings of lean body mass and you're up by, you know, three, four kilos by the end of the year, I think you could be relatively confident that your, your lean body mass has gone up. But even then, like if you're doing one DEXA scan in the morning, another one at night, you know, this is why people oh, who measure their body fat each week and they start fretting about the, you know, the, the, the number going up and down. Like, it's just, you don't recommend it. <laughs> it's so, I, I would be fretting more about the radiation exposure at that point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very true. That's very true. About. Well, um, Greg, I think, I think we're running out of time. Um, do you have anything that you, uh, would like to plug or anything we haven't talked about that you wanted to, to touch on? I mean, I wouldn't mind replugging mass. Yeah. I'm, I'm go for it. Please. That. Uh, you should subscribe. It's the best. Um, we, we go through, I think it's up to 127 journals every month now. Uh, pull out between 90 and 150 articles that look, uh, potentially interesting and relevant to uh, lifters and physique athletes. Narrow that down to uh, seven that are going to be the best and most applicable. Um, tear into them. Uh, critique the studies themselves. Um, but then also like discuss the, the takeaways that uh, will help you as an athlete or a coach. So, I mean... I'm biased, but I personally believe it is a tremendously valuable product. Um, so yeah, I recommend checking that out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like I said, I, as somebody who, who've been involved in the research, I use it just cause it's great to help me keep up with the research and it's phenomenal and anybody can learn from it. And so if you're somebody who's interested in, you know, taking your knowledge to the next level, I think that that's one of the best resources you can have. And would you also recommend this for the, average fitness buff who maybe um, isn't super confident with scientific jargon and but still wants to understand what the research is saying? Yeah, we, we very intentionally um, try to keep try to keep as much of the meaning as possible while writing on as accessible of a level as possible. Mm -hmm. So I would say if you have no scientific background whatsoever, um, there might be like a paragraph here or there, um, when we're talking about like a specific research method or a specific type of statistical analysis that might go over your head. But 
at least at least 90% of every article should still be like very readable layman's terms type stuff. Yeah, and you guys do a good job of like you summarize stuff at the end and you you kind of put together take home points that even if they you lost somebody somewhere during their article, you're still going to come back around and pull them back in by the end. Yeah, that's that's what we aim to do. I mean, like ultimately like they tell you when you start a business, you should have an avatar who is your like the, the primary person you're trying to reach with the stuff you say and your products and all of that. Uh, and it's supposed to be like your ideal customer. Like that's, that's what they say you're supposed to do. Um, my avatar, like from the time I started uh, writing to this day is myself at 16 years old. Um, <laughs> Because, like, basically, I got into lifting, I knew nothing, and I made a ton of stupid mistakes. And so I always think, like, if I could go back in time and tell myself something I didn't know then, uh, one, would that help me to be a better lifter and to not have made some of the mistakes I made? And two, would 16-year-old me have been able to understand that? Um, And so, yeah, I mean... uh, do with that what you will. It's it's written on uh, 16-year-old Greg level, which may be a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> well, I know. I, I mean, it's funny, Greg. I've never thought – you're making me think about things from a totally different perspective. Uh, I've never thought about it that way, but that's exactly how I kind of did my stuff. Like I was just putting information out there because – I was like, oh, man, I screwed up a lot of this stuff when I got into it. And, God, I wish I could yeah. – uh, you know, if I could help somebody, it would be great. you wish you would have you known know? kind of when you first started. Mm-hmm. 100%. You have been a little bit less lost because I know with oh – gosh, I feel like with health and fitness, there's so much um, information overload and everyone thinks they're an expert. And um, as we were talking about at the beginning of the episode, it's hard to uh, – when you're you know not an expert, it's hard to determine who really knows their stuff versus who's just making – bullshit up as they go along um so yeah i really i really like the perspective it makes a lot of sense to me and it's nice to know that um i think science in general can be very intimidating to a lot of people especially with all the statistics and the you know the different language that's used and um you know maybe you skim the abstract you don't read the discussion or you don't read the look over the results or something so to know that there's a um good team of people out there doing the hard work for everyone else, um, and being a reliable source of hopefully unbiased, objective, you know, information, um, to inform the public. It's good. Very, very good to know. Well, thank you. (laughs) Um, uh, Greg, do you have time for one more? Do you have to get going or do you have time for one more quick, uh, relatively quick question? No, I, I've got time. My, my wife's flight got delayed, so I don't have to be to the airport for another two and a half hours. Good, good, good. Okay. So this is a two part question. They're uh, related. So I'm just going to give you the first one first and then uh, and then the follow-up. So um, I know we discussed this briefly last time we tried to record and we talked about, you know, all this talk about hypertrophy and bodybuilding. Uh, many people think that high reps are good for, you know, quote-unquote toning the muscles and um, low reps uh, are better for building strength and whatnot. But you, re- I know you recently did a review on all the studies comparing high reps versus low reps on hypertrophy. Um, what did you conclude? Uh, so if, if you're going to do the same number of sets, uh, to failure or very close to failure, uh, doesn't really seem like 
the rep range you're training in makes all that much of a difference. As long as you're doing, I would say probably five or six reps per set plus. Um, I've, I've heard whispers that there's a study coming out in the not too distant future that shows that there is, um, like an upper limit to that. So when training with super, super light loads, uh, like 20% one rep max, then hypertrophy starts tailing off again. Um, so that would be more related yeah. to maybe like the way that many women train with the very like the three pound dumbbells. So is, is that more along those lines of what you're saying? The twenty percent? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. That makes um, sense. But yeah, so basically between yeah, I'd say maybe thirty percent one rep max to about eighty five percent one rep max. Okay. As long as you're doing about the same number of sets, hypertrophy's gonna be very similar. Uh, the caveat to that is that if you're doing the same number of sets, because for some exercises, it's, it's probably feasible. Um, like, you know, some people like to do heavy bicep curls for sets of eight, and some people like to do lighter bicep curls for sets of 20, and whatever, that's fine. Um, however, not that many people are gonna be able to do a bunch of sets of squats for sets of 20. Um, so yeah, I, I think, I think Oh no, Oswald, you've been so good. <laughs> I love this. Um, it's okay. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, so, okay. It, it's Hypertrophy is going to be the same in the lab, but I would say like in terms of feasibility and in practice, yeah. uh, that's still going to apply for some exercises, but especially for a fair amount of heavy compounds. Um, slightly heavier weights are probably going to be better for hypertrophy just simply because most people aren't going to do as many sets if they're, if they're using higher reps. Sure. Like if you're doing sets of 20 on squats, you're doing one set, maybe two. Right, right. Whereas if you're doing sets of six to 10 reps, you know, you may do five or six sets. Mm -hmm. So I would say, I would say from, from just a practicality perspective, um, you know, sets of probably between five to six ish up to maybe 12 to 15 ish reps. Um, probably the range where you'd want to spend most of your time. But if on accessory exercises, you just want to do some high reps and catch a killer pump, uh, you're probably going to grow just fine from that. I mostly coach powerlifters. So even if they don't want to train heavy, they're going to be training heavy. Uh, <laughs> just because that's how that's how the sport works. Like I'll, I'll tailor the program so maybe you don't get quite as much eighty percent plus work, but at the end of the day, you got to go heavy, uh, at least some. But yeah, no, for for hypertrophy, just just find that range that uh, the metabolic stress will still be tolerable. So. You know, that may be 12 to 15 reps. For most people, it's probably not going to be 20 or 30 reps. Um, and just what feels the best for you. And, uh, you know, and, and like you were saying, based on confidence, based on uh, comfort and feel as well. No, that was great, Greg. Uh, really appreciate it. Appreciate your, uh, your matter-of-factness and bluntness, which I think is wonderful. And uh, I, I actually, you really honestly have brought uh, a couple of unique perspectives that I, uh, things I've thought about, but changed the way I've thought about a couple of things. Um, and so 
Uh, we really enjoyed having you on. Uh, where can people get a hold of you? Is it just through Mass or uh, where, can, where can they find you? Do you have a website, anything like that? Uh, yeah, strongerbyscience.com is my website. Um, I'm reasonably active on Facebook, just under my name, Greg Knuckles. Um, I Instagram occasionally. That's mostly pictures of my dog. Um, and that's about it. <laughs> awesome. Well, we appreciate having you. We appreciate you coming on, man. Thanks for working through all our technical issues. And uh, best of luck to you in your master's research. Yeah, it's all, it's all good. Thanks for having me on, guys.